Okay, everyone, if we could please make our ways to our seats, we will get started. Thank you all for being here. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the second panel of today's conference. Uh, some of you will have noticed outside that we have brief bios of uh, our speakers. You'll notice that uh, Cato staff do not appear, I think. Uh, our, our resumes don't look nearly as impressive as our speakers, so we decided to leave them all off. But it's safe to say uh, I, I'm a policy analyst here where I focus mostly on the intersection of technologies and uh, law. And we heard just now in the first panel about uh, incarceration and its effects, and I'm really pleased that the follow-up session we have now will focus on uh, how we got to where we are now, what motivates the laws that land people in prison, and also how people come to interact with the criminal justice system to begin with. And I can't think of uh, three better speakers uh, than the ones we have right here. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will speak. Uh, and after their presentations, there'll be an opportunity for you all to ask questions. The first speaker is Heather Ann Thompson, who is a history professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, she is the author of this book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. It has received uh, widespread acclaim and was, the, was included in the New York Times Notable Books for 2016. It was a National Book Award finalist. It was a Publishers Weekly Best Book of the Year. Uh, if I was to stay up and list all the others, we would be here a while. But it is available for sale outside at discounted rate, and I'm sure Heather would be happy to sign any copies you pick up. Uh, Thompson serves on the boards of several policy organizations, including the Prison Policy Initiative, the Eastern State Penitentiary, uh, a historic site, and on the advisory boards of Life of the Law. She received her BA and MA from the University of Michigan and her PhD in American History from Princeton University. The second speaker is John Pfaff, who is a professor of law at Fordham University, where he teaches criminal law, sentencing law, and law and economics. Before coming to Fordham, he was the John M. Olin Fellow at the Northwestern University School of Law and clerked for Judge Stephen F. Williams on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. John Reese, John's research focuses primarily on empirical matters related to criminal justice, especially criminal sentencing. His recent work concerns the role that prosecutorial discretion has played in driving up prison populations. He received his BA, JD, and PhD from the University of Chicago. So I guess we don't have to uh, debate how you felt about the World Series. Were you? <laughs> um, the final uh, speaker is Jonathan Simon, who joined the Berkeley Law Faculty in 2003 and teaches criminal law, an advanced criminal law seminar on mass incarceration, sociology of law, and several classes in the undergraduate legal studies program. Jonathan's scholarship concerns the role of crime and criminal justice in governing contemporary societies. His most recent books are The Sage Handbook of Punishment and Society, as well as Mass Incarceration on Trial, A Remarkable Court Decision and the Future of Prisons in America. He received his AB, JD, and PhD from Berkeley. So with that, I hope you'll all please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Heather Ann Thompson. Good morning. So uh, first, of course, I want to thank uh, Cato for having me here, for putting together this panel, especially for having me. This is a, 
a policy uh, group through and through, and I'm the, the, the fuzzy humanist in the room um, and uh, here to tell history stories, but hopefully here to persuade you that, um, that history matters a great deal to uh, the discussion today. And uh, I first, I guess I want to just locate myself just for a moment in that discussion uh, because I feel like we are continuing something that for the last few years has been incredibly vibrant, incredibly important, which is this bipartisan discussion uh, about the imperative for criminal justice reform. Uh, I, I remember, this is last March, I was at this uh, historic summit here in DC. This was part of many of the different um, organizations that came together to have this discussion about why we were in a criminal justice crisis and what we might do about it. But I do uh, feel that today's convening is particularly uh, pressing because it's not at all clear where we're going, uh, I think, uh, at this new moment. Um, we hear talk of law and order again. And as a historian, that has deep resonance to me as very historically specific and part and parcel of why we got here today. And so uh, I think it's really a great time for us to unpack what uh, is really clearly, um, uh, I would say, really the civil rights crisis of the 21st century and the human rights crisis of the 21st century. The, the previous panel really uh, punctuated that with some powerful stories. Um, but we are still left with this really profound question of how did we get here? And what is the here? I just share with you um, this slide from the Prison Policy Initiative. It is, uh, it is shared with you to really drive home the point about how massive this mass incarceration is. Uh, and also how punitive this is having um, historically unprecedented amount of time being served, um, a record amount of years in solitary, uh, including for children, unprecedentedly long penalties for wrongdoing even once you're outside of prison, unprecedented criminalization of uh, particularly impoverished spaces and spaces of color in our cities, and so, indeed, I feel like it's really important that we talk about how we got here. Now, it, it wouldn't surprise anybody to know that the, the paths here are incredibly complicated, and we're going to hear a lot of those here today, some long-term paths, some short-term paths. Um, I had the opportunity to serve on a National Academy of Sciences panel to discuss this very question, to settle this very question of what were the causes of mass incarceration in addition to its consequences. And to sum up a very complicated 500-plus page report, the bottom line is that we chose this, uh, that there were political reasons why we chose this that were completely independent of some historically remarkable run-up in crime. In fact, we began the war on crime before there was historically remarkable crime rates. Um, so we know quite a bit. But what we don't really understand is the fury, the punitive ethos, the anger, the thing that actually drove voters to embrace such policies. We can see that politicians pass laws, but we can't fully explain why ordinary Americans came to scream for those laws. Um, and again, I think this matters a great deal to understand this because I often feel that what stands between us and real criminal justice reform often is not 
the legal system, we can figure out ways to change that, to tinker with laws, to tinker with policies. But what we really run up against time and time again is an ethos. It is the suspicion that we must continue to do this because alternatives might not be as effective or whatever. So this is where I hope that my book comes in, which is, uh, which was a 13-year effort, uh, 13 years because the state of New York has really kept all of the records to this uh, sealed for reasons that will probably become clearer to you in a moment, but a 13-year effort to rescue uh, the story, the history of one of the most extraordinary human rights struggles in our American prison system, which took place in uh, Attica, New York in 1971. So um, why Attica? Why do I want to talk about this? Well, notably, the war on crime had already begun in 1965 when we get the apparatus with the Law Enforcement Administration Act. But in that moment, even in 1971, if you look at polling data, one of the most extraordinary things is that Americans were quite sympathetic to the idea that prisons should be humane places, that guards should have good training, that people on the inside should have paths to reentry, such as education, uh, job training, and so forth. Um, and, and indeed, something fundamental happens after 1971, because if you look at the run-up to incarceration, it's really after 72 that we begin to embrace some of our most punitive policies, including our attitude towards addiction uh, becoming much more punitive, um, and our attitude that once you've committed a, a crime, that somehow you were irredeemable, or somehow that the conditions that of your confinement uh, can be brutal, and it doesn't matter anymore. That really is a, is a tipping point in 1971. So I want to tell you the story of Attica just very, very quickly uh, to give you a sense of why I think this matters, why this particular moment matters. Uh, Attica is a maximum security facility. It's in a tiny town in upstate New York, very, very reminiscent of every other maximum security uh, prison then and now in America, overcrowded, disproportionately filled with um, uh, African American, in this case also Puerto Rican and poor white um, uh, uh, prisoners inside, and the conditions were terrible. Uh, folks being fed on 63 cents a day, one square of toilet paper a day, horrendous medical care, no dental care, people losing all their teeth, which may not seem like a human rights issue, except for you realize if you don't have teeth, it's very difficult to eat. Um, and I could just go on and on and on about the conditions. Um, the guys inside had a remarkable faith in our democracy and in our political process because they tried to remedy these by going through the system, sending letters to correctional officials, writing to state senators, um, and ultimately this got them nowhere. The series of incidents that actually leads to an all-out eruption on September 9th, 1971 are complicated. I won't talk about them, but needless to say, this was unplanned and uh, down to literally uh, a gate having a faulty weld in it that ends up coming open in, a, in this moment of chaos. But that chaotic moment that was indeed a riot very quickly morphs as these men decide that they have an opportunity to bring the world inside of a prison and let us all know what things are really like inside begins. They all move into one area, which was D-yard in the prison. These men elect representatives from each of their cell blocks to speak for them. They bring in uh, some very important outside observers. You'll recognize here perhaps Tom Wicker from the New York Times. 
Bill Kunstler, famed civil rights lawyer, uh, Clarence Jones, uh, editor of the Amsterdam News. This was just a slice. There was also Republican state senators in here. Um, but these were people chosen to help move these negotiations along with the state. These men had also taken hostages, guard employees, civilian employees, to ensure these negotiations would take place. And again, the media was there because these men understood that most of America has no idea what goes on behind bars, and indeed that they wanted the media to oversee these negotiations as well. The negotiations go on for four days and four nights. They are really quite extraordinary. Uh, again, what are the demands? Basic, basic human rights demands. Ultimately, the state is uh, willing to uh, uh, consider uh, many of the demands, but one of the most important sticking points in the demand uh, was this issue of amnesty. The men felt that they couldn't give up without a guarantee of amnesty uh, for having rebelled, criminal uh, amnesty, but also uh, a guarantee against physical reprisals. Meanwhile, when this is all going on, outside of the prison, this is what's going on. Every battalion in the New York State Trooper Association is descending upon Attica for four days. They are outside of Attica getting angrier and angrier. Weapons are being passed out indiscriminately. Nobody's writing down serial numbers. And in fact, one hapless trooper that I found was trying to write down serial numbers of weapons and was told to rip them up. Um, this is what's happening outside. We now know these men were being fueled on this diet of rumor that of inmate atrocities going on on the inside by the FBI. Um, and it is into this mix that the observers understand we have to keep negotiating, negotiating and whatever happens, let's don't bring in force. Uh, they make very clear to the American public, but also to the governor, who was then a pretty famed liberal Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, please don't come in. If you do, and they use these words, it will be a massacre. Well, needless to say, the governor did not heed those words. Indeed, sent in hundreds of state troopers, and in 15 minutes, shooting thousands of bullets and buckshot, and shooting weapons outlawed by the Geneva Convention into this space, 50, 50 by 50 yard space. And into this mix, 39 men were killed, uh, prisoners and hostages alike. 128 men shot so severely that they were permanently wounded, uh, permanently damaged from the, some six and seven bullets. And then uh, sheer torture began that lasted days and weeks. And I'm rushing through a huge, I'm rushing through my 800-page book in a few minutes. Uh, but, but this is important because into this utter, utter chaos, in, as after this utter chaos, this is a bloodbath. That's the title of the book, Blood in the Water. One of the prisoners said when he looked up, all he could see was blood in the water. The state of New York stood outside of that prison and told the world, and it was the world because every newspaper was there, and uh, the AP was there, that something entirely different had happened. The prisoners had killed the hostages inside. They had slit their throats. They had actually castrated one of the uh, guards, shoved his testicles in his mouth. And this was just the tip of the iceberg of the brutality committed by the prisoners. This story went out on the front page of the New York Times, the LA Times, the London Times, every AP paper in between in every small town in uh, the country. I actually looked at those papers. It's really quite extraordinary. 
And needless to say, this was what people came to understand this prisoner rights rebellion was about. Telegrams begin flooding into the prison. They begin flooding into every newspaper. They begin flooding into state senators' offices and the House representatives' offices. And what is the demand? The demand is that these people need to be locked up longer, that there needs to be a death penalty, that prisoners are not deserving of human rights, and in fact, that the prison uprising shows that the civil rights movement itself has gone too far, that it is violent, that it is aggressive. And that narrative is profoundly important. It's profoundly important because, in essence, it becomes this touchstone moment. There's a number of these, but Attica's one of them, where people begin to sour on this idea that prisons matter, that people in them matter, that the people who are connected to them on the outside matter, and indeed, it leads us down this path of getting it all wrong, thus the long shadow of Attica, and that allows me to wrap up, what did we get wrong? Well, we lost the idea that we had some humanity in our criminal justice system. We lost the idea that the people inside were serving time. They were not sentenced to torture or neglect or abuse. We lost the idea that the people inside were but a reflection of the people on the outside, that in fact these were our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our children. These were people disproportionately drug addicted, disproportionately mentally ill, disproportionately impoverished. And we erected a system that was terrible for all of us, a system that made us less safe for our families, a system that made us, that's sort of the less safe, um, sort of definitely increasing violence in communities of highly incarcerated communities. It led us to policies that we are now uh, hopefully feeling deeply shameful about, deeply worried about. And indeed, it led to our prisons becoming some of the most repressive institutions they have ever been. Two stories this week alone in the New York Times indicates that Attica in particular but prisons in general are absolutely uh, barbaric once again. So in closing, what does this mean? I hope what this means is that Attica gives us an opportunity uh, to uh, rethink what goes on behind bars as we try to redefine our criminal justice system. We spend a lot of time talking about the laws on the outside. We spend a lot of time talking about the courtroom, about the, the feeder policing, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the courts that get people. What we stop talking about, I think, and really haven't talked about sufficiently in this bipartisan discussion, is conditions on the inside. We need independent oversight. We need accountability. These are our prisons. These are our public institutions. And yet we have no idea what goes on in them. We can't just walk in them. State senators can't just walk in them, right? And so uh, perhaps the most important thing that Attica teaches us is that uh, in addition to demanding access and oversight, uh, we need a criminal justice system, including the places of confinement uh, that would be places where we would, uh, we would accept that our own children ended up if they did the worst thing possible or if they were addicted, or if they were mentally ill. Thank you. So this is going to be a 180 from powerful emotive stories to 
dry, hard statistics. Um, that's where I feel more comfortable. Um, so the topic for this panel was how we got here, which unfortunately we can't really say very well, at least from a quantitative point of view for C, but I can at least explain perhaps why we are where we are and what that means going forward. So obviously the story I want to tell is one that we're all quite familiar with, right, which is that from 1920 to around the late 1970s, prison growth was pretty flat and stable, prison populations. In fact, in 1979, in one of perhaps the single worst time articles in academic history, one of the great legends of criminology wrote that the incarceration rate will never rise above about 100 per 100,000, because if it does, we will change our laws to keep it at about 100 per 100,000, or not. Now we have this little bump here at the end. That little downturn has some people thinking decline, maybe. It also could just sort of be a soft landing at a new normal. It's hard to say what happened before. I'd love to be able to tell you a story. Here's how we got here. Here's where we're going. But we have a slight empirical problem. I chose this map from the 1600s for a reason, because it's a pretty accurate reflection of the data that I have on a daily basis. 1960s, 1980s data is like that corner of the map. Here there'd be dragons, California's an island, there's just lines going to void, there's that weird yellow thing. I don't even know what that is, but there's clearly no land there. That's my data from the 60s to the 80s. It's about what I have. 90s today, you know, Florida's stubby, Louisiana's not there, Cuba's the size of the entire East Coast, Mississippi bends in sort of a weird kind of way, right? It's kind of like what it looks like. Better than the 60s, not great, right? That's kind of where our data stands. Right. We have, it's important to understand how noisy and messy and ugly our criminal justice data is. That it is almost impossible to use prior to the 80s, and that we have from the 80s and certainly the 90s and 2000s is better, but if you state anything with confidence, that should be a giant red flag, um, except for my work, completely reliable. The rest of the stuff, <laughs> confounded by incredibly noisy data. There are a lot of theories. It would take hours to explain them all. I want to focus on what I think of as sort of the three things that we ought to be paying attention to but aren't, sort of the three who's that we don't look at. The first two that we tend to ignore is the prosecutor. No one talks about the prosecutor. It's amazing how no one talks about the prosecutor. When Hillary Clinton unveiled her end-to-end -end criminal justice reform policy, it was more of an end-and-end -end criminal justice policy, right? She talked about policing. She talked about sentencing, but she never talked about the prosecutors. Even in the national you know, NAS report, when they talk about what caused prison growth to happen, they'll get trends in crime, trends in arrests, and then trends in admissions per arrest, as if arrests just turn into admissions. When the, C, when the economic advisors released their report about a year ago, uh, which they put a tremendous amount of weight on the role of prison admissions, which is correct and oftentimes undersold, when they talked about prison admissions, it's amazing, for two solid pages, it is entirely written in the passive voice. They are admitted to prison. How? Right? You don't just end up in prison. Someone makes a choice. There is a person in an office signing a piece of paper that puts you in that prison cell, and it is the prosecutor, and we do not talk about that person. People convicted of violence, we don't talk about them either. We cut them out of this story altogether. Every single reform either talks about the nonviolent drug offender or explicitly states this applies to everyone but those convicted of violence. As I'll point out in a minute, that is a death knell from reform from the very, very start. And the third person we don't talk about are the prison union guards, because I guess unlike private prisons, they're not shocking enough, with this one caveat, right? Perhaps here, we talk about private sector unions, a little public sector unions a little bit more, right? But in general academia, they are left untouched. Um, yet, for all of our talk on private prisons, it is a public sector that does this. Mass incarceration is a public sector failing, and attacking the private sector is not going to fix it. Until you confront the private sector's role, we will not get ourselves out of this mess. 
So I'm going to tackle each of these ones in turn. So let's start with the prosecutors. My story here comes from a paper I, I did looking at 34 states between 1994 and 2008. The states in the years are chosen again by nothing more than the data they have available to me. But the 34 states are a pretty wide, fair, representative sample of the country. I mean, is three-fifths of the country right there. Um, and you know, 94, 2008 actually is not a bad time frame because whatever explained the rise in incarceration might not explain what's kept it, well, sorry, what explained the rise in incarceration while crime was going up might not be the same causal story to explain how crime, prison kept going up as crime went down. So I'm explaining how do we keep sending people to prison even as crime fell? So here's sort of the basic stylized facts to keep it simple. Between 94 and 2008, crime fell and total arrests fell. They both went down we have fewer people entering the criminal justice system altogether. Yet during that time, the number of felony cases filed in state court rose by 40%. Fewer people coming in, more people going to federal court. What that means in effect is that the probability that an arrest turns into a felony case doubled. Prosecutors became profoundly more aggressive as a collective whole during the 90s and 2000s. Once they file a charge against you, the probability that you went to prison doesn't change. Right? So there's about a one in four chance that a felony case results in a prison admission that stables out this whole period of time. Once you go to prison, there's no change in time served. And even if you accept those studies showing that time served went up, which there are challenges with those studies, they didn't go up by nearly enough, even accepting them on their own terms, to explain the rise in incarceration that we saw. Most of the rise, especially during this period of 90s and 2000s, was driven by an increase in admissions. And that rise in admissions came from exactly one spot from prosecutors filing more charges against a smaller and smaller pool of people being arrested. Right? This is a prosecutorial-driven policy. Yet if you look at every reform bill we pass, not a single one talks about prosecutors. Nothing has been done to directly challenge their power. They remain invisible and unregulated. And it is a profound blind spot in what we are doing. Another example, just to show just how localized this is, we talk about federal reform. They can't do anything about the DAs. We talk about state level reform. This state's passed that law, this state's passed that law. That's a start forward. But because the DA drives the power, incarceration is a county level phenomenon, not a state level phenomenon. The map I'm about to put up here is the decline, or, or is change in people sent to prison, not by state, but by county between 2010 and 2014, the great decarcerative period. Outside of California, Mississippi, and New Hampshire, you won't actually be able to identify a state on this map. Several of those states that are dominantly orange, very little blue, are some of the biggest decliners in incarceration. New York State has had the longest sustained decarceration in current history since 1999, yet almost all that decline has taken place in five counties, four counties, right? Four-fifths of New York City. That's it, right? 60 counties go up, five counties go down, and that's enough. It is not a state process. It is a state prison system, but prisoners are county prisoners. And until we focus a form at the county level, we're not going to make the progress that we want to make. Sorry, I'm fighting off a cold and incredibly nasty. In fact, I'm, this talk itself is a race against my voice. I've got like nine minutes of voice left, I think. About 10 minutes left to say. We'll see how it plays out in the end. The second main thing you hear all the time is obviously it's just locking up all these people for drugs, right? Anytime I tell someone I study prison growth, they give me sort of this sad look like, oh, you poor academic throwing away your life. Like, we just know it's just the war on drugs, right? It's just locking up for drugs. We all know this, right? It's just what we're told. But it's not true, right? So here are the number of people, percent of state prisoners in prison for drugs. From that in the early 1980s, is about 4%. And then it does, over the course of the 80s, rise dramatically. 
all the way up to about 22%. That's not nothing, but it's far from everything. And since 1990, what has happened has been a slow, steady decline in the share of people in prison for drugs to slightly under 16% today. 84% of all people in prison are not in prison for drugs. What are they there for? Between 1980 and 2009, we added about 1.1 million people to state prisons. What were those 1.1 million people convicted of? Well, 551,000 of them, or 52%, were convicted of a crime of violence, not drugs. What was drugs role? They added 223,000 people, about 21%. Right? A substantial, a majority of the growth has been in people locked up for violence. If you look just from 1990 to 2009, as crime was going down, you would think drugs would play a bigger role then. It's the exact opposite. Between 1990 and 2009, the percent of new prisoners who are there for violence is 60% of the growth. 12% of the growth is for drugs. We are locking people up more and more for violence, even though we have fewer and fewer violent crimes. The problem is, we still have enough violent crimes, enough violent arrests, that we could keep our prisons full just locking people up for violent crimes to this day, right? The percent of arrests for violent crimes that result in a prison mission is small enough that if we change that number, we can lock up a lot of people for violence and keep things fairly high. Until we're willing to confront this issue and ask ourselves, what do we want, how do we want to treat violent offenders, people convicted of violence? Even that word shows how problematic things are, right? You should never use the word violent offender because that suggests that violence is a permanent condition, that you are a violent person. This is who you are. Not that violence is a transitory phase through which people age into and age out of, right? I am now at <clears throat> 41, far less violent than I was at 18, right? I might not be as violent as other people were when they were 18, right? But I was more violent at 18 than I am today. And that's true across the board. And we call people violent offenders. That suggests that is simply who they are, not as a product of their environment, not as something they will in fact age into and age out of making our idea of long sentences completely preposterous from a protective point of view. Now I understand why drugs gets all the attention, right? It's that giant growth number. Well, violent crime emissions drew by 300%. Those for drugs drew by 1,175%. Obviously they must matter more, they grew by so much, which for those of you hapless enough to follow me on Twitter know that this is pet P probably number two on my list. And, it's a very long list. Um, if a percent change is large, that means the thing you're looking at doesn't matter, right? That's how you get a big percent change. It was very hard for violent crimes that were 10 times larger than property crimes in 1980 to grow by 1,000%. Property crimes grew by 1,000% because they were so small in 1980, not because they were so important in 1980 or so important over that transitory period. Large percent change generally means the exact opposite of how we tend to spin it. It means it doesn't matter, not that it does. So, prosecutors, a need to talk about violence, and let's be clear, what I'm often told when I make this point is that I have to respect sort of the need to build a coalition, right? That we go for the low-hanging fruit first, for the non-violent crimes, and once we get that low-hanging fruit, then, then we'll turn to the high-hanging fruit. Two things. First of all, we're about 10 years into this movement now. I don't see anyone changing the rhetoric at this point. We are still just picking the low-hanging fruit. Second, we're not building the ladders to pick the higher fruit. We're setting those ladders on fire to, to pick the low-level fruit. How do we justify reforms for nonviolent offenders? By saying you gotta jack up the sentence for violent offenders. Everyone praises South Carolina for their incredibly progressive sentencing reform policy several years ago. Do you know how they got that through the state legislature? They got it through by cutting sanctions for property and drug crimes and ramming them up for violent offenses. How did liberal 
liberal Maryland do the same thing last year? The exact same ploy. And they explicitly stated, we have to pass these tougher laws for violent crimes so we don't look soft on crime. Right? Red, blue, it doesn't matter. Both sets of states are making the exact same mistake, that you cannot design policies that ratchet up the sanctions for violent, people committing violence, or even rely on a rhetoric that says we must use prisons for those who scare us. And you see this across the board. No one ever says, let's cut prison populations, period. Right? It's always, let's cut prison populations so we, so we can use the space for those who actually deserve it. People convicted of violent crimes. That's what that means. And as long as you know, Georgia has seen its prison population drop in a way of its reforms, but the absolute number of people in Georgia prisons for violence has gone up. That's a ticking time bomb for their reform efforts. Right? The people who serve the longest sentences are being admitted at a greater rate in Georgia. They are growing, and at some point, I imagine Georgia's reforms will make a U-turn. The third challenge that we face is the issue of public sector incentives. Everyone hates the private prison system. Right? The first thing Bernie Sanders did when he wanted to show he actually cared about criminal justice was to introduce a law banning private prisons at the federal and state level. Put aside the fact that the state level ban is unconstitutional, um, it was obviously a symbolic piece of legislation, but it was the wrong symbol. Clinton, upon revelation that she received money from, from private prison firms, was forced to give it all back, even though it was about 1% of all our campaign contributions to date. 7% of all people in the United States are in a private prison, 7%. Almost all of them are in just five states. There is no evidence that those states have seen faster growth than states that don't have private prisons. Right? There's no correlation observable of any sort between private prisonness and prison growth. And in those five states that hold the majority of private prisoners, those prisoners are a minority of all prisoners. Right? Texas has a lot of private prisoners because they have a lot of prisoners. Those private prisoners are a minority. It's the public sector that drives this, and it's important to understand how. First of all, prison guard unions. We talk about how we spend $50 billion a year on prison. Do you know where that money goes? Half of it or up to three quarters of it goes to wages. That's what we spend money on. When you hear that average, if we cut a prisoner, we're gonna save 30 grand? Absolutely not. Because you don't save six sevenths of that until you lay off guards, and states don't lay people off. New York State has cut its prison population by 25% and has seen its expenditures on incarceration grow through wages. Prisons are an area where there are a few other jobs. Those legislators fight hard for them. Those elsewhere don't, right? They will fight hard for their prisons because they think it's the last job they have. Unions are aggressively anti-reform. They take public pride in being tough on this. Private firms outside the, no, some of the ALEC firms were terrified after Trayvon Martin to be associated with ALEC because they can't be associated with crime control. Right? Coca-Cola quit because they don't want to be associated with tough on crimeness. But the CCPOA in California, they embrace it. In New York State, they embrace it. Right? They are actively, aggressively opposed to reform. There are tricky politics at play here, too. Right? Rural legislators have very powerful incentives to keep their prisons where they are. Right? Part of it is just jobs. That effect is overstated, but they believe it. And at least it's something. More insidious is the census. Outside of four states, if you are a prisoner, you live where you are in prison, not where you came from. There are state senators whose entire district depends on their prison. No prison, redistricted, no seat. It effectively transfers about 1.3 million Americans from more urban cities to less urban rural areas. Given that the minorities there tend to be disproportionately Democratic, and the districts where they are tend to be disproportionately Republican, is a profound shift from a blue state, blue area to redder, and then they can't vote while they are in prison, right? The census is reviewing this. It's the kind of like minute, boring triviality that plays a huge role at the state level. Even more insidious, though, I think, is the fact that we ignore the way geography and race plays out at a more micro level. In almost every urban county, there is a ring suburb where a lot of people live. Those ring suburbs tend to be wealthier and whiter and tend to have much more of the political power. 
but that's not where DA enforcement takes place. So the white suburbanites tend to elect the district attorney who's then in charge of enforcing laws in the disproportionately minority poor urban core, right? The costs of over-enforcement are divorced from the benefits of over-enforcement. Because those who feel the benefit, those suburbanites, don't feel the cost of aggressive enforcement. Because they don't live there, they don't know them. There's an economic gulf, there's a social gulf, there's a racial gulf, right? And it operates at this micro-county level. And it's worth pointing out, in Cook County, when, when in the last election, yes, Kim Fox won the suburbs and the city. But she won the city by 10 points more. 65-35 in Chicago, 55-45 in the suburbs, right? And the suburbs are much more liberal now than they were 10 years ago. Elsewhere, that's the difference between winning and losing, right? The suburbs choose a DA to enforce the law in the city, and that is an incredibly powerful way in which race and class play a role that we don't tend to pay attention to. And again, it is a public sector problem. The last point I'll make, and then I'll be quiet because I'm pretty sure I'm out of time, is that the incentives of politicians are a mess. Right? They are strongly encouraged to be tough on crime, and no one is focusing on fixing those incentives. Right? No one is trying to say we need to fix the political process. We're ramming through what we can now without changing underlying policy. We all know about Willie Horton. I think we should change it now to the Daryl Dennis problem. Daryl Dennis, for those of you who don't know him, probably most people, he was a single loan parolee in Arkansas about four years ago. Arkansas is a reform policy. They cut their prison populations by about 10%. Things are looking promising. He's on parole. He kills one person. Parole shuts down. Prison populations rise within the next couple of years. Right? It is the classic Willie Horton problem is updated for today. Right? We have done nothing to address the incentives that local judges and local prosecutors feel. They are just as afraid of the one bad mistake. And though that mistake shows up, when you're overly punitive, no one sees that mistake. Right? The only way I can show you you're being too aggressive is while on table 16B of this regression, I'm showing you that risk pool A is definitely being way over incarcerated. Right? That's my side. Right? Your side is a victim on the ground you can point to. I'll never win that debate. Right? And we've done nothing to address those underlying political problems that have persisted all along. Right? And so this is all going to reverse itself. And I'll just close with one last anecdote to drive home how cyclical this is. In 1970, Congress abolished all mandatory minimum sentences for drugs. All of them, or almost all of them. And one of the representatives from Texas who got up on the floor of the House and said, we must abolish mandatory minimums for drugs. These things are awful. They are bad. They are immoral. They must go away, was Texas Representative George H.W. Bush, who as vice president and president, brought them all back, and then some. And now we're abolishing them again, except for opioids. We're already bringing them back, even as we're abolishing them. I'd be willing to bet about 50 bucks in the over-under as to whether or not we're gonna have all these things to repeal now back within 20 years, right? It's what I call Cylon criminology. All this has happened before, all this shall happen again. And if we don't actually change underlying politics, that's what we face. So on that depressing note, because I do actually have solutions, but no time to talk about them, I will stop. Well, thank you. Um, I don't have a PowerPoint, so we can turn that off. Thank you. Um, so I want to thank Cato, and I want to especially thank uh, Jonathan Blank and, and Matthew Feeney for, uh, for including me in this. Uh, I'm on a panel with the two people who have probably done the most to shape my own thinking about sort of our current configuration, both from the quantitative point of view and the focus on prosecution that John has brought. And of course, the story of Attica, which I was fortunate to learn from Heather orally uh, about uh, seven years uh, into this 13-year process of writing it. So it began to influence my work long before the book uh, came out. So um, I think what I can contribute here is to try to step back a bit in history, because uh, both Heather and John have kind of focused more or less on the period of what I call the war on crime. John mostly focusing on the 90s to the present, Heather going a bit back further uh, to the 70s. And I want to suggest that 
we have actually multiple arcs uh, of history that are culminating in what we call mass incarceration today. And in particular, I want to go back to, to two, uh, I think, very important moments uh, that need to be put into a focus here. And one is uh, at the end of the 18th century. So I'm going to go way, you know, I'm going to go deep here, uh, deep history. The end of the 18th century, when we get really the formation of the modern system of criminal law that we know with legislators as supreme uh, articulators of the law, with courts as uh, the enforcers of the law. And this is something that, if, if it doesn't trigger those of you that survived the first year of law school, we call the legality principle uh, in criminal law, that legislators are supreme, that courts are essentially subservient to them. That's, again, not to trigger you all those doctrines like vagueness and prospectivity and whatnot, which are supposed to mean that when the legislature creates a, an offense definition, the courts don't uh, sort of widen it at their whim, that there's a kind of clarity and accountability to the law. And this even got, got its way into a powerful Latin expression, nulla poena sin lege. There is no uh, crime and there should be no punishment without law. And in many ways, this is our theory of a democratic criminal justice system. The legislature is our representative. Congress is our representative. And it's not just us. Europe made this change at around the same time. And even if they didn't have democracy, they had a sense of national sovereignty. So being punished for a crime is no longer going to be a story about being an enemy of the king who can be sort of abused in the name of the king's vengeance. Nothing proportional about that, right? You could be hanged for, uh, for, for pocketing, uh, pocketing and other things that essentially violated the king's peace. But the, with the birth of this legality principle, we do get the beginning of an arc of, in many ways, moderation and reform uh, in the criminal justice system. And really a pathway toward reform that will get stronger in some ways as legislatures themselves become more democratic and as more voters are brought into the polity. In, uh, in England, this is very distinctive because of the, it's not till the beginning of the 20th century that uh, workers get the vote. And so suddenly you see uh, big changes in the structure of English criminal law. So if we think about this democratic system of criminal law that comes into being in the 18th and 19th century with legislatures and courts, and then in the common law system, we also build in room for democratic action through juries as well and locally elected sheriffs. So there's a kind of dual system, legislative supremacy at the top, popular democracy through institutions like the jury at the bottom. And you can begin to see already problems for America in this structure, particularly with our racial history. And the whole idea of what the Caroline Products footnote once called discrete and insular minorities who are not able to get their interests served by the legislature and who are not able to influence local justice or are excluded from jury pools, et cetera, already provides one very important, in a sense, democracy deficit for those of us, those of us in states like the US with a legacy of slavery or similar racial oppression. This is Bill Stuntz's work in many ways was pointing out this dilemma, this problem. But I think the real problem, in some ways the harder problem, comes from the fact that this transformation of criminal law at the end of the 18th century was accompanied by an, another transformation that we talk less about but has become famous thanks to the work of Michel Foucault largely. And that's the birth of the prison and the birth of the policing system. So at the same moment that you get this rearranging of the criminal justice system, the way we think of it still today, courts, legislatures, juries, et cetera, we also get the formation of this kind of dark apparatus of penitentiaries on the one side, police on the other. And they come into being virtually at the same time. And the important point here is that although they are then forged together, so that at the beginning of the 19th century, we have a 
criminal justice system that is sort of a dual system with these courts and legislatures on the top and these, uh, uh, these correctional and police actors on the bottom. The point is that they come out of totally different logics, but have had to be forged together. And in Europe, this spawned a really incredible set of intellectual gymnastics in the law, whole fields like medical jurisprudence that were incredibly important doc, you know, doctrinal and academic fields in Europe never came into being here. Why? Because of prosecutors. Prosecutors were essentially the transformers who could make the two halves of the, 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 the legal state and the carceral state connect through this prosecutorial figure. And I'll come back to the prosecutor later because that powerful role that uh, John intimated has this deep historical roots uh, in this problem. So by the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, we've got a legal state that treats the lawbreaker as a citizen who has violated the law, which speaks about deterrence and retribution as the main purposes of punishment. But we've also got a carceral state that focuses not on legality, but on abnormality. Um, and these are quite different. The citizen lawmaker is judged for their conduct at one time and space moment and punished proportionately expiating the crime and they go forward then as a requalified citizen. The abnormal subject is surveilled for their entire life, picked out by the police and the correctional apparatus as a permanent client basically and recycled through patterns of arrest and incarceration. Now mind you, this is a story that we share with Europe, with Latin America, with Asia to the extent that I understand their legal systems. So why is the US carceral state so much more aggressive uh, in its potential, at least? Hasn't always been, but at least in its potential. The answer we tend to give is slavery. And there's no doubt that slavery created a particularly degrading model of punishment. And to the extent that we now sort of punish people in the model of slave punishment, as Jim Whitman would point out, this is a kind of downward status departure in which people convicted of crimes lose their status as equal members of the community. Um, and that has had a profound impact. But I want to argue here today that, and based on, again, other people's work, that the really uh, powerful moment of transformation that makes the American carceral state so much more aggressive than others around the world, so much more uh, non-democratic, is actually what we sometimes call the progressive era but which I now want to call the eugenic era, because it is the era of scientific racism and really the birth of a kind of understanding of the population as a set of uh, risk groups that can be managed by uh, the carceral state, if not the legal state. And it's important to focus on this because to some extent, those of us, many of us on the left side politically, uh, uh, naturally when we talk about criminal justice history, want to point to the ways and the places where conservatives uh, or whatever was conservative at one moment in time, say nativism in the turn of the 20th century, is sort of the bad guy here. But actually the progressive era, a lot of the work that's being done to sort of expand the carceral state and also very importantly to race, to race the idea of abnormality, to make blackness the main face of crime. This is what Khalil Muhammad in his extraordinary book, The Condemnation of Blackness, calls the condemnation of blackness. What happened? Criminologists, people like myself, many of them Jewish, many of them liberal uh, in sympathies with the workers, etc. In order to essentially address concerns about immigrants as being criminal and dangerous, essentially pointed to African Americans who were then also showing up in northern and midwestern cities in the first part of the Great Migration as the real threat. This is the time when the federal crime statistics start distinguishing black versus white rather than native, born, and foreign. So there's a transformation here. It goes along with a huge expansion 
of the carceral state itself. We get the birth of juvenile court, parole, probation. That, that carceral state is now proliferated out in a huge way. Well, that brings us to the dawn of our own period, uh, the war on crime era. And thanks to Heather's book, thanks to Elizabeth Hinton's recent book, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, we now know a lot more about this process. And I won't try to summarize it here. But let me just point to the sort of danger to democracy and to even reform possibilities in this enlarged carceral state. Because in many ways, the war on crime never undid the eugenic model. It just gave it new sociological uh, framings, tangled poverty neighborhoods rather than pathological individuals, but with much of the same focus on blackness and on urban communities of color. So what do we end up with? Um, unlike deterrence, which is really a very democratic idea of punishment that exudes over the entire community, at least in principle, policing is, is capable of being highly concentrated. And the whole model of preventive policing, which we've developed since the 60s, really relies on concentrating police. So in the early 20th century, police tended to be distributed around the city and something more of a general deterrent. Now they've become preventive players in a way that's barely contained by the legal code because of the proliferation of, of laws. The conditions of confinement at the other end of the system are entirely a, a matter of administrative discretion with a small amount of you know, dollop of due process rights in there. But by and large, whether you serve in a supermax or in a honor farm is not a matter of law. It's a model, a matter of administrative power. And the prosecutor, who might have been seen and is seen in the code of professional conduct as a sort of representative of the legal state to the carceral state, overseeing the police, supervising the police, is the opposite. The prosecutor tends to be the representative of the carceral state to the legal state, rarely if ever questioning the conduct of the police or the, certainly the correctional system, frequently defending them uh, in, in law. So let me, let me turn to one sort of particular problem that I think brings all these things together, and that is this notion of proxy crimes. One of the reasons it's so hard to think that the legislative model of the penal code has any real control over what the police and correctional system does is that we've created a vast system of proxy crimes legislatively. So what is a proxy crime? Michael Moore, the legal philosopher, defined it in 1997. He said, sometimes we choose a morally innocuous act as a proxy for another morally wrongful act or mental state. Now, philosophers debate intensely whether this is just, whether you can justly punish people for these morally innocuous, uh, uh, morally innocuous acts in order to get at more morally wrongful acts because they're correlated in some important way. Think about burglary tool statutes, which are kind of the law school hypo example of this. Very hard to catch people in the act of burglary, but maybe you can catch people carrying burglary tools. Vagueness problem here, of course, uh, what those tools are. Uh, but it's much uh, more. Uh, achievable. And that's the point. However much we debate the justice of this, what's clear about proxy crimes is that their main function is to make, make it easier for the police and the prosecution uh, to uh, punish people. Um, so once you, have, once you have a large and expensive carceral state, the incentives on the legislature to change the, the offense definitions to make that carceral state more effective are almost uh, irresistible. Uh, and indeed, we've seen, we moved from burglary tool statutes in the 50s to possession crime uh, after the 1960s as a ubiquitous form of proxy crime. So we've pretty much admitted that, well, part of the point of the war on drugs was that it was really a war on violent crime. We knew who the violent people were. We just hand out drug offenses, arrest people for these easily prosecutable drug crimes, and then we'll decide who goes to prison for a long time because they're the dangerous folks. 
And of course, legislatures, um, often made up of former prosecutors, have been deeply uh, agreeable to this model. So where do we, how could we reform this? I want to end by suggesting that we need to improve on earlier unsuccessful efforts to sort of rebalance the, the carceral and the legal state. One was the determinate sentencing movement. That was an effort to sort of shore up the legal state against at least one part of the carceral state by taking the power away from administrators and parole boards, et cetera, putting it back into the legislature and courts, right? Of course, it didn't work because they didn't think about the police end of, uh, and the prosecutorial end of the carceral state. But what I suggest we do is think about a triangle of especially sort of uh, anti-democratic uh, features uh, of our carceral system now. One is preventive policing. And I agree, I agree with some proposals that have been made. Again, they're going to raise hackles in terms of crime control, but we need to debate it at least, that we basically end preventive policing, uh, at least for a period of time, make police go back to actually doing uh, the job of responding to citizen complaints about crime. There's something deeply democratic about that. It would also have a big procedural justice effect, I think. And most importantly, it would take that aggressive sort of confrontational policing out of our inner city neighborhoods where it's obviously uh, lethal. Probation, that's everybody's favorite reform solution. Let's take everybody in prison and put them on probation. I go the opposite way. I think we should come close to ending probation, Pri privatize the reentry work that probation does, and get rid of this enormous bureaucracy that is committed basically to carceral uh, ideas of abnormality and I think deeply raced ideas as well. And finally, I think we should do something to try to eliminate proxy crimes. And here I think there's real possibility of a left-right agreement because uh, this would essentially get rid of strict liability crimes in the federal code as well. And that is to introduce a mens rea requirement uh, into all laws, either in the form of an offense element that the prosecution would have to prove that would go to the sort of wrongful purpose of the crime, the action, or perhaps as an affirmative defense, uh, give the defendant an opportunity at least to prove by preponderance of the evidence that they fit into the morally innocuous, not the morally harmful category of the crime definition. So let me just end, because I think I'm out of time, and we can take up these and, and many other issues. Thank you. Well, thank you, Heather, John, and Jonathan. We do have uh, a few minutes before lunch. Uh, please uh, wait to be called on if you'd like to ask a question and announce your name and affiliation. I'll remind you that this is the question and answer session, not the statement and answer session. Questions end in question marks. Uh, I'll take the gentleman in the front row right there. Howard Wolders from LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. For John, I come at this as a, as a retired detective, and your assertion that the war on drugs, drugs had not been the driver of incarceration rates, I would respectfully disagree with. And my felony caseload, and that of dozens of detectives I've talked to, a solid 70, 75% of the crimes we, we deal with touch prohibition. As in, you say property crimes aren't the driver, why do people break into homes? 200 bucks a day for crack. Why do people shoot 84 of each other in, in Chicago on a weekend? Because it's gang related. The mother's milk of the gang is selling drugs. So when we look at this at, at LEAP, uh, we look at this as the, the prohibition, better term, Drug prohibition is the major driver by a factor of 70, 75% of our felony crimes and therefore our, our crime rates and, and those in prison. Um, did, when you did your research, did you 
and I know it's difficult because they don't correlate breaking into a house. I did it for crack. It's just you broke into a house. I understand that. But did, did you make any attempt to talk to police officers to get a, a better understanding of the of why people shoot each other, why there is so much violent crime, why there's so much property crime? So that's a... If you release it. Yeah. Right. It's a fair question. It's a challenging one too, though, right? Because the narcotic that is most highly associated with criminal behavior is alcohol, right? And the, we don't arrest people for alcohol, but it is actually the root cause more so than any other drug, right? So the challenge of saying is prohibition, is that if we lifted prohibition, two things happen simultaneously, one of which we can think about, one of which we have no idea how it's gonna play out, right? We know the fact that fewer people will be arrested for drugs. We also know that fewer people will break into homes because the price of drugs will go down. But some of those people will get more addicted because now price is cheaper and those people will lose their income and those people in turn buying cheaper drugs will now have to break into homes more because they're losing their ability to buy drugs in the first place. No one understands how these elasticities play out because no one's been able to run that experiment, right? So you'll see some decline and some increase, probably for a net decline, but it's hard to say. When it comes to the gangs, I think one of the best books to read and read written recently on this issue was Ghetto Side by Jill Yovi, right? And her point is it's less that drugs brought the violence, it's that drugs came to where the violence was. And that any time, and she has examples from like Tsarist Russia and South Central LA, if you have a collection of young men with limited upward mobility and the state renounces its monopoly on violence, those young men will form gangs and they will kill each other out of self-protection and out of youthful aggression. Right? And that's exactly what happens here, right? That the clearance rate for murders in LA County is 60%. The clearance rate for black men in LA County is 30%, right? Half that of the state. There is, and yes, perhaps some of that comes from the fact that police officers are investigating drugs and they could be investigating murders. That could be a part of it, right? But it's not entirely clear that if we abolish drugs, those killings are going to stop. Some of them will stop. Right? But drug use will go up, and therefore you will have more people who will kill each other because they're on crack, and because they're smoking that crack, they get into a domestic fight, and that results in death. Fewer people killed over the crack deal itself, more people killed because of the resulting violence that comes from young men using drugs. The fact that maybe they kill themselves over a drug deal here, now they're gonna kill themselves over a girlfriend dispute there, because but the same underlying violence will remain if you don't get rid of the, of the of the police office, if you don't get rid of the of prohibition. So our ability to predict what would change if we lift prohibition is incredibly hard because when drug use goes up in the, in the resulting period, behaviors shift at a magnitude we're not quite ready to, we don't have the ability to understand what that implication would be. But alcohol certainly suggests that when you legalize a drug, violence doesn't drop. And a lot of that prohibition story you hear about, capital P prohibition, two things you have to realize is, that, and probably the most important thing you have to realize is that one, we're in a period of urbanization at the exact same time prohibition hit. Right, and urbanization and violence go together. Two, during prohibition, more places started reporting data during that time. Right? So some of the rise in violence during prohibition isn't an actual rise in violence, it's a rise in reported violence. In this case, we have more agencies reporting data. Right? This is why I talk about, like, in order to understand, I see so much work on criminal data where if you don't dig down deep and really understand just how messy our data are and why they're messy and the ways in which they fail us time and time again, you can reach incredibly wrong, at least dangerous conclusions that are hard to support the numbers that we have. So yes, there will be offsetting effects that would benefit there are lots of non-drug crimes. There are a lot of people in prison for crimes that aren't drug crimes that are tied to drugs. But I'm, I will absolutely concede that in, in a heartbeat. 
what is the impact of lifting prohibition is going to be tricky because there'll be all these sort of offsetting things that are going to swing back and forth. Or conversely, the poor person selling drugs because they can't make ends meet because they can't pay rent will now steal cars to not, right? So they'll shift from one thing to the other. When drugs become legal, the price drops, illegal market collapses. And so they, they're, they're not going to necessarily have a job, right? If you legalize as opposed to decriminalize, you know, you're going to see the major companies move in, the industry will consolidate, and the people selling drugs will fall. If we don't provide other jobs for the people who are currently selling drugs, which I doubt is part of the plan, right, they're going to turn to other illegal activity to, to, to make ends meet, right? So the actual math of it is, in, it makes your, in my book, I try to like wrestle with this, and it just makes your head kind of spin as to where it actually plays out. Would either of you like to address the... Um, yeah, so uh, I, I, we actually uh, passed when we were supposed to, to end. Right. It is now uh, 12.30, but I know that uh, Heather, John, and Jonathan will, will uh, be here for a while. The uh, next step for all of you is to, to have lunch, which is going to be up the stairs on the second floor. Uh, all that uh, remains is for you to please join me in thanking all of our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.